Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, ladies and gents. How are you doing? My podcast is made possible thanks to several things. Your donations and also support from sponsorship. Now, on the subject of donations, you can still send me contributions, uh, donations, if you'd like to help me to keep making these episodes. That's a very sincere way for you to say thank you. If you have sent me a donation recently, then I would like to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you very much. Uh, you are helping to keep this podcast alive. Uh, I always appreciate your support, but I don't want to keep asking for handouts all the time. So I also have sponsors that help me to keep doing these episodes. One of those sponsors is italki, and I'm happy to tell you about their services because they could really be helpful to you and your English. Everybody knows that speaking English with people regularly is vital for proper development of good communication skills, fluency and clear pronunciation. But it can be hard to find the right people to talk to. But you can find people using italki. They have lots of qualified teachers and uh, native speakers of English. Uh, perhaps, for example, you could find someone from the UK. And those people are ready and waiting to talk to you and to help you with your language development. And when you buy some talking time, italki will send you a voucher worth one free lesson. To get started, you can go to teacherluke.co.uk slash talk or click an italki logo on my website. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hello, folks. Welcome back to Luke's English Podcast. I hope you're doing well today, wherever you are, and whatever exciting things you might be doing at this very moment. Um, you're now listening to episode, which one is this? I think this is episode 489, which is called A Rambling Conversation with Mum, part two, plus vocabulary. So, yes, the rest of my conversation with my mum. This is part two, which means that you should listen to part one first, because that's how numbers work. You know that, don't you? Of course you do. Of course you know that. But if you're embarking on this episode without having heard it, part one, then I softly advise you to listen to part one beforehand, okay? So I softly advise you because at the end of the day, I'm not the sort of person who's going to force you to do things, but it's just a recommendation from me to you. You might want to hear part one first uh, for obvious reasons. Okay, then. In this conversation, you're going to hear my mum and me wittering on about various things, including the bookshop where my mum works, because she works in a bookshop. Um, also, some of the books that she's read recently, and some of her podcast and film recommendations as well. 
the conversation is about 45 minutes long. And then after that, I'm going to go through, go through, that's not how you say that word. What happened to my face when I said that? Go through. That's not how you, how I normally speak. Um, after the conversation, I'm going to go through uh, lots of the vocab that comes up naturally in the conversation, which should be a good way to help you build your vocabulary so that you end up speaking the kind of English that my mum speaks or that I speak. Okay? That sounds good, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Okay, good. I'm glad you agree. Uh, All of the vocab that will be explained in the second half of this episode is presented to you in a big list on the page for this episode. So I suggest that you check that out. If you're serious about learning this language, and I mean English, if if you're really serious about learning English, then all you need to do is just sort of go the extra mile and um, pay attention while I'm explaining the vocab and visit the page on the website where you'll actually see the the, the words and expressions uh, with some definitions and little example sentences from the conversation, okay? All right then, good. So now you know what to expect. Let's get started. Let's get straight into it. And let's carry on with this conversation with my lovely mum. And here we go. As well as being a volunteer at Unlocking Warwick, mm. uh, what else do you do? What else do you What else do you do with yourself? <laughs> <laughs> well, on the subject of books, I also work in a second-hand bookshop. Okay, All I right. work in an Oxfam bookshop, to be precise. What's Oxfam? Which is, yeah. Sorry. Well, I think most people will know what Oxfam is, won't they? It's an English charity. It was founded in England in Oxford in the early nineteen forties. And it's a it's a charity that goes out and helps people at times of crisis or, you know, during famines or you know, all that sort of thing. They go out and they help people with, uh-huh. you know, practically with food and water and teaching them how to build shelters and, you know, all that sort of thing. Relief Speaking work. Go- yeah, that's the word. <laughs> Re- relief work and and, yeah. and- and aid. At times of crisis, usually. Okay. But I, I think they do have an ongoing uh, programme of helping people. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, and it's a charity? It is. And in this country, they've, um, they've always had shop. well, not always, but for a long time, they've had charity shops, Oxfam charity shops, where people can take their unwanted stuff mm. and um, it's sold in the shops. And all the profit obviously goes to Oxfam. Well, Oxfam specialise in bookshops as well. And there's one in Knoll, which is near where we used to live. Yeah. Um, and I volunteer there. I've been there, volunteering there for about 12 years now. And um, it's great because I like books so much. So I enjoy selling them and talking to people about them. Yeah. It's hard work sometimes, but um, it's great. Can you just describe what the bookshop looks like? Well, it just looks like an ordinary bookshop. I mean, in fact, it's a very nice. Well, it does. <laughs> no, what do you mean? What does it look like? No, all right. So, um, just considering the fact that you know, people who are listening to this, they might be in Russia or China or Japan well, or they Spain. Must have bookshops. Or, yeah, of course, they've got bookshops. Yeah, but I mean, what I mean by that is that 
the location of your bookshop it's on a kind of it's on the high street of a little village in in the, yeah. in the english in the warwickshire countryside solihull yes. technically yeah it's 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 a bookshop on a high street in an english village yeah and the street i mean the building what how old do you reckon that building is have you got any idea Ooh, um and it's got oh, to be. A, I would have thought certainly Victorian, maybe earlier than that. So it's a couple of hundred years old, probably 150 years old or something. Mm. And it's like this little shop uh, on a row of terraced shops. Yeah, next door to a hotel. Actually, we've got a hotel on one side and an Indian restaurant on the other. What else do you need? <laughs> <laughs> Indian restaurant, hotel, and a bookshop. You could just yeah. live. You could just. That's all you need, really. To, In fact, a, we're quite near the end of the row of shops um you know not really an ideal position um but we do very well and we're very popular we have lots of people who come in you know time and time again and we also manage to um get lots of new people in as well people manage to find us even though we're not in the most brilliant location yeah um and uh, it's a great shop it's not very big but um we're very proud of it, <laughs> all us volunteers who work there. And we we work very hard to make it look as attractive as possible and to put out all the best books. Because we do get, because of course all the books are donated. Mm-hmm. We don't have to pay for any of them. Um, but it means we can't choose, you know, we just have to have what we get. Um, and obviously we get some really good books and some not so good. And so we're very um, careful to put out all the really good books and and display them well and uh, mm. talk to people about them if they need us to. Okay. And uh, take a great pride in it. It's a very pretty shop, I have to yes, say. Yes, it is. It, I think it's nice. I don't know why, but I've been to lots of Oxfam bookshops. Every time I go anywhere in the country and there's an Oxfam bookshop, I always go in. And ours, I think, is be- better than most. I think it's because we've got some nicer shelves, which helps. I don't know wh- where they came from, but they seem a bit nicer than the, the standard Oxfam bookshop shelves, which are sort of metal. Um, yeah, because yours, yours are wooden shelves. Yes, yeah, we've got wooden units and that looks much better. And you also got a nice wooden floor, haven't you? Uh, no, we haven't actually. Haven't you? We've just got a like a um, plastic... That- tiles kind of on the floor nothing very special i thought it was wooden floorboards no well there you go you see you you had that sort of feeling about it when you came in but we haven't i've imagined the wooden floorboards you have but i mean you are imagining it's the sort of place that would have nice wooden and and hugh grant works there doesn't he (laughs) i wish Really? Would you like to work with Hugh Grant? Not really, no. Who would you like to work with if you could have, oh. a, if you could pick one male celebrity and one female one, who oh would they God. be? You, you can, yeah, you can work with one male and one female. Well, you know which male I'd like to work with, don't you? Uh, Alan Bennett. Yeah, but he's far too old to be working in an Oxfam bookshop. He could just sit in the corner and uh, he could yeah and talk. He could sit in a in a leather armchair and tell stories. I can't now, do don't it. take the Mickey. I can't do an impression of Alan Bennett. No, you at don't all. sound anything like him. I sound like Jeffrey Boycott, not Alan you do. Bennett. You would that would be your bloody nightmare, wouldn't it? Having him it in would. the shop. God. Now look, Jill, you're stacking them books all wrong. <laughs> I think you'll find, Jill, you shouldn't have done it like that. Now if I was doing it, I would do it like that. <laughs> When no, I went I'm... out to bat, did I take books um... under my arm? I didn't, did I, Jill? Anyway, that's Geoffrey Boycott, a famous English cricket player who's also... A famous Yorkshire, he's a 
professional Yorkshireman of the worst kind, whereas Alan is a Yorkshireman of the very best kind. Right. So, yeah, Jeff Boycott, sort of an, no. opi- an, an opinionated uh, cricket player. Mm. Uh, and uh, But Alan Bennett was um, just, oh, he still is, a writer, um, a poet... Uh, no, I've never seen any poetry. Oh, okay. I'm sure he does write it, but I, I don't think he does it publicly. He's a writer. He's a playwright and a, and a, mm-hmm. co- and a writer of comedy, um, right? How would well, you- he, started, he started out in uh, Beyond the Fringe, which is a very famous um, English comedy, comedy group with- in the s- late 50s, early 60s with Jonathan Miller, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. Mm. And they did a... Um, Sort of, what do you call that, those kinds of shows? A review? Uh, no. That's right. A review. Sort of, yeah, little scenes, little Ske- skits. Sketch of, show. Yeah, sketches. Stage-based yeah. sketch show. Mm. They were pioneers of the of the genre, of the mm. of the English sketch uh, series. I but think so. what they did was mainly on stage. Yeah. They started in Cambridge. Um, two of them came from Cambridge. I think... Um, Peter Cook and Jonathan Miller were at Cambridge and Dudley and Alan were from Oxford. It's um, interesting. And I th- think it is, isn't it? Because they're... Because they're shorter. Because they're shorter than the other two. Well, yeah, but they are also work, what you might call working class and the other two are much more patrician. Peter Cook and Jonathan Miller. Um, listeners, we're talking about a, a group called Beyond the Fringe, um, who were around in the early 1960s, uh, and they did comedy on stage, and they were really, really influential. And uh, from Beyond the Fringe, we got these four guys who went on to do really great work in, in other areas, particularly in comedy. Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, I did an episode about them, once on this podcast. Brilliant, uh, both of them, absolutely hilarious. And then mm. Jonathan Miller and Alan Bennett um, went on to to do other kinds of work. Uh, and, and all four of them just did brilliant work. Um, Jonathan but, Miller yeah. and Alan Bennett were more at the, the two more academic mm. members. Yeah. Um, pizza, but, it, but you mentioned that Peter Cook and Jonathan Miller were the ones who went to Cambridge. I think uh, that's right, yes. Yeah. We think. And then. And Dudley and Alan were at Oxford. Dudley and Alan were at Oxford. And you know why I thought that was funny? Like, because they were. Dudley and Alan. Dudley and Alan, yeah, being the shorter ones who went to Oxford, it's like Monty Python. Because Monty Python's Flying Circus is a similar story. They came out of Oxford and, and Cambridge universities. But it was John Cleese and Graham Chapman who were the tallest, and they went to Cambridge. And Terry Jones and Michael Palin, who were the shorter ones, they went to Oxford. So I don't know if it's got anything to do with height. Well, I think you'll find that Alan's quite tall, actually. Oh, is he really? Oh, OK. Yeah. I'm just, I'm, <laughs> it, yeah, I'm just making it fit the, the, the theory. Are. It's like the wooden yeah. floorboards in your shop. I'm yes, just, it is. I'm just yeah. imagining it there, obviously. Yeah. OK, so you'd have Alan Bennett. Uh, if you could choose to work with someone, you'd have Alan Bennett sitting in a chair mm. talking to you. Yeah. Uh, would you... Uh, what, what about the female uh, companion? Um, goodness me. Oof. 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 Oh my goodness, I can't think. Oof. It's a difficult one, isn't it? It is. Is there a writer or broadcaster? Someone that came to mind, of course, is Victoria Wood, but can't have her anymore because she's dead, unfortunately. Well, we can... We can 
we can, we break can bring them. her back to life, yeah, can we, we? Yeah, we, I can speak to some people. Okay. Um, I wish you would. Victoria Wood. Mm. Who's that then? Or who was that? Well, she was um, another comedian uh, who came from Lancashire, I think. Very, very funny. How did she start out? She's, did she start out as a stand-up or did she start out... Oh, I know how she started out. It was when there was that Saturday night show with... Oh, God, I can't remember her name. There was a Saturday night show and she was on playing the piano and singing funny songs. Oh, I know. It, it, the Saturday um, night show was called That's Life. That's it. With Esther Ranson. Esther Ranson. That was the name I couldn't remember. That's how she came to people's, uh, you know, Attention. noticed. And then she became a stand-up and then she started writing sitcoms and plays. And she was wonderful. Yeah. Really amazing. Really funny. Yeah. And brilliant. And, yeah. and you know, sadly, she was one of the uh, celebrities. 1916. Uh, sorry, 2016, <laughs> 2016. Um, victims. Yeah, That's right. One of the many celebrities we lost last year, uh, yeah. the, the terrible year of 2016, when we lost so many great people, including mm. Victoria Wood and David Bowie and uh, mm. uh, numerous other people. Um, who's the poet, the Canadian poet? Yeah, Leonard. Leonard Cohen yeah. and a whole bunch of other people. Yeah. Okay. All right. So those are the two people who would join you in the, in the bookshop. Now, because all the books that come into the Oxfam bookshop are all donated by people. Mm-hmm. They're all secondhand books. Yeah. I expect you f- often find the same books coming in. What's, what's the most common book that you receive at the Oxfam bookshop? Um, <laughs> well, it used to be Dan Brown, of course. That's a bit of a joke in what, secondhand bookshop circles. What, the Da Vinci the, Code? The Da Vinci Code, because it was so popular for so you know, at a certain time and everybody had a copy, read it and either thought it was rubbish or absolutely loved it and then eventually got rid of it. So we have had hundreds of Da Vinci codes. We don't get so many now, but we do get quite a lot of general fiction, uh, modern novels and classic novels. We get a lot of cookbooks, you know, cookbooks that are um, linked to particular television shows like Jamie Oliver and people like that. Bake Off. Uh, and Bake Off. So that when the show is popular, people go out and buy the books and then a year or so later realise they never use them and, and donate them to the shop. So we get loads of Jamie Oliver uh-huh. and we get a lot of uh, celebrity um, biographies and autobiographies. Yeah. Which, again, are very popular for a short period of time and then nobody wants them. I see. But we get we're, we're very lucky when we where we are because we get very good donations, quite a variety of stuff Mm. and some quite good ones okay i was going to ask you another question from a listener on the Mm. on the in the comments section this Mm. question is from marta another regular in the comments uh, section hello marta and uh, marta asks you do you have any recommendations of some interesting books or films or movies which you have read or watched recently. We'll start with the books. So, Marta would like to know if you've got any book recommendations. Well, the books I've been reading lately have been very much influenced by the um, backlisted podcast I mentioned before. Mm. So, a lot of them are quite obscure. Um, For instance, the last one I read is called The Citadel by A.J. Cronin, which was written in the 1930s. And I read it when I was a teenager and I've always remember, remembered it. Mm. And I managed to get a copy, it's out of print now, but I managed to get a copy on the internet and read it recently. And 
Oh, it's. I mean, I loved it when I was a teenager. It's, and it's, I've always remembered it. And I loved it almost as much, if not more, this time, reading it the second time. It's about um, a very idealistic doctor, GP, in the 1920s, before the start of the um, health service. Mm. And uh, it's brilliant. What, what's, um, so, what's so brilliant about it? Well, it's very interesting because you learn something about the way uh, people were looked after medically before we had the health service because the whole of my lifetime we've had the health service. Yeah. But in those days, doctors were paid per visit or per consultation. There was quite a lot of corruption with doctors charging for giving medicines that were just boiled water or something. And, you know, there wasn't the same regulation that there is today. Mm. And... Um, uh, a lot of the illnesses, of course, were caused by uh, infrastructure. You know, the fact that the sewers or the weren't properly, you know, they weren't they weren't put in everywhere, and the water supply was wasn't pure. Mm. So people died of all sorts of, you know, enteric diseases to do with, you know, mm. uh, typhoid, um, cholera. Yes, all the things that are spread by bad water. Yeah. Um, and uh, in the book, he and uh, one of his fellow doctors are so frustrated because he keep getting people, having people dying from these illnesses, entirely preventable, yeah. preventable, but not very easily treated, that they um, go and find the sewer that is leaking and making the water poisonous yeah. and they blow it up <laughs> so that the authorities have to replace it. How do they and, blow uh, it up? Um, with a bomb? With some Sticks of dynamite. <laughs> oh my God. But um, it's really the story about this young man who starts out being incredibly idealistic and wanting to improve things, and he gradually gets worn down by the system and ends up being one of these quacks who just gets as much money, gets himself popular with uh, people with lots of money, yeah. and then charges, um, treats them for conditions they haven't really got, and all that sort of thing, until he's finally brought up short and realises what he's doing, and then goes back to his more um, humanitarian way of working. Right. It's just very interesting. It's quite moving as well, hmm. um, but it's very interesting learning about the system and the things that went on. Yeah, they did things in those days. I suppose there's this character arc as well of this guy who starts out yeah. idealistic and then becomes cynical and then goes back to. Well, being... he doesn't get cynical. He gets seduced by the money and the position and everything that he can command. Right, I see. Does until it? He... Do, sorry, does it say? Does it tell you something about like healthcare today? In a sense, it, yes, it does. It, it, there's lots of parallels. Um, but a lot of it is about morals and um, it's a very um, socialist book, really, I suppose. It uh, espouses socialist ideals. The idea of, um, you know, state healthcare, basically, mm -hmm. a, reg yeah. a, a, a regulated healthcare system. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's a wonderful story as well. Yeah. The thing is, though that my listeners might not be able to get a copy of that. No. Well, this is the trouble. I, I suddenly realised that when I was thinking about the books, um, that a lot of them are, because of being influenced by the backlisted podcast, yeah. most of them are a bit obscure. Um, right. the, the one that I've read recently, which, which is modern, which has recently been um, published, is called Mothering Sunday by Graham Swift. Uh-huh. Um. He's a wonderful writer. He wrote many years ago, he wrote Waterland, 
don't know. It's a very famous book of his. I don't know if people might know that. I think I've heard of it, but I don't. Yeah. I haven't read it. But this one is very short. It's a novella, really, which means a very short novel. Okay. Um, and it's about events happening on one day, which happens to be Mothering Sunday, in um, just after the First World War. And it, it's a tiny book, but it contains a heck of a lot because it's about class and it's about post-traumatic stress after the First World War. It's about families losing sons. Um, it's just very good. Okay. Very, very good. All right. I was most impressed with that. That's Mothering Sunday by Graham Swift. Swift. And the fact that it's a novella yeah. is a good thing for my listeners mm. because it just makes it a bit more achievable. Because, mm. um, you know, it can be quite hard. If, if English isn't your first language or if you're reading in a second language, it yeah. can be a bit of a slog sometimes yes. to keep going. Uh, I'm sure. So a, a shorter book is is ideal. Yeah. Um, well, Mothering Sunday is one of those books. It's like a diamond, you know. It's been compressed, mm. so that there's it's a very small thing, but there's a heck of a lot in it. It's a bit like the Old Man and the Sea. Yeah, that's a short book, but yes. uh, it, it, it's very very efficiently written. Yes, that's right. And it's a very mm. simple story. Mm. Just like there's an old man, he goes out to catch a fish. He catches it, mm. and then he tries to bring it back, and you yeah. know, and it's like a big epic sort of uh, metaphor for something. Yeah, I'm not sure. It's not just about catching a fish. It's not about catching a fish. <laughs> if Mark, I can just imagine what Mark Kermode would say. <laughs> That's right. The other one that he always talks about, or that he famously talked about in those terms, uh, was uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Oh, yes. Which is a sort of espionage thriller. Yeah. Uh, and he said it's not really about spies it's not yeah. really about spying it's about i don't know truth and trust and yes and larger themes like that um, yes yeah. well you, but you'll find that most really good books are like that aren't they they're not just about what they appear on the surface exactly yeah exactly that's what i always think yeah mm. uh, and that's one of the joys of well either books or films i'm more of a film person yes you are these days you I, you did read a lot at one time didn't you yeah um i think that I, I've got so many books all around me, mm. loads of them, the piles of books that I really want to read, but mm. it, somehow it has slipped out of my yep. uh, lifestyle and I am now a podcast person. Mm. And so I have loads of podcasts in my phone that yes. I listen to, not just Mark and Simon's film review, mm. but also Adam Buxton's podcast. Oh, yes, that's another of my favourites. I like him very much. Well, it depends on who he's, who he's talking to. I love it when he's talking to um, Louis Theroux. Yeah. Um, they, they're another pair that are just sympathetic to each other they go together really well and they talk really well together yeah i mean adam uh, i just always enjoy listening to his podcast but yeah. yeah i agree with you completely when louis theroux is on there that's mm. brilliant but i just think louis theroux is probably one of my favorite people yeah same here i think he's extraordinary um and i've i keep mentioning him every now and then on this podcast but i don't think i've quite got the message through yet Right. To my audience, that they probably don't know how to spell Louis Theroux. Yeah, it's spelled L L O U I S Theroux A T H E R O U X. Yes, T H E R O U X Louis Theroux. 
He's a documentary filmmaker, basically. Mm. Um, and he he has he makes these interesting documentaries. How would you describe his work? <sighs> yeah, tricky. People say that he is faux naive, uh-huh. which means that he comes across as being someone who who's an innocent. He doesn't really understand what the situation is, and so he has to ask questions in order to find out what's going on. I, I mean, I would have said that was a fair enough I think description so. of his style. I agree. He he, kind um, of, he he looks a bit sort of uh, dorky, goofy, goofy, possibly geeky. He's kind of a bit tall, yeah. a bit sort of um, gangly, gangly. Like he's kind of a bit too big for his bone, big for his what? Well, his arms and legs are very long. He's just a very long, tall person. <laughs> yeah, and he's he's sort of got this awkward Britishness. Yeah, yes. And he wears glasses, and he's kind of. I mean, from as he says himself, from certain angles, he's he can look quite handsome, but mm. then from other angles, he looks really sort of. Um, uh, his nose looks too big, and he wears well, these big glasses. And I think he looks handsome all the time. Oh, do you? Yeah. You quite. You, do you fancy him? <laughs> that would be a bit much, wouldn't it? Well, Me just, fancying him. You just said. That I you think. Found well, him no, of course I don't fancy him. I'm an old woman, and he's a young man. You can but, fancy um, him, can't you? If, well, I think he's very attractive. Just leave it at that. I think that means you fancy him. <laughs> Um, and and he's got this way of speaking, mm. and it, yeah, you're right. He he gives the impression of being a little bit sort of uh, naive, mm. and he goes into these. He's he's a, a journalist who ends up in the middle of the stories that he's reporting on, and mm. he started out by um, um, uh, sort of investigating weird people. Louis Theroux's Weird Weekends. That was the TV show that he used to present, Louis Theroux's Weird Weekends. And he would, a lot of them would be in the United States and he'd go and sort of spend time with uh, conspiracy theorists and um, neo-Nazis and all sorts of weird fringe Mm. groups. And he'd Mm. go in and he was very, he's very unassuming. Uh, which means that he gives the impression that he's not judging the people he's talking to. He's actually very friendly and his naive, awkward English friendliness is very disarming for the Mm. people he's talking to. And he poses no threat to them. And, uh, you know, he doesn't have an aggressive style. He's actually very friendly and very nice. And as a result, people kind of open up to him in ways that they wouldn't open up to other investigative reporters. And as a result, he gets amazing reactions from the the people he's he's, um, talking to. I think political uh, interviewers and reporters could take a lot of notes from him. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. you know, you don't get the best out of people by being aggressive. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm just trying to think of a good example of this. Like he went to South Africa and he spoke to this guy called Eugene Terreblanche. <gasps> yes. Who is, um, I mean, I don't white know. White supremacist. A white supremacist in South Africa. And Louis, it's, it's actually hilarious to watch the video because Louis is going, OK, so, um, you know, I'd just like to 
get an idea of where exactly it is you stand on this. And so, <laughs> can I I've just I've just come up with a list, and I just want to know if you think these things are okay or not. And like the first thing is like, so um, a white um, a white person and a a black person going out on a date, and Eugene Terrible is absolutely not. I don't know. I can't. It's really hard to explain. Yeah. Uh, it you, is. You have to just see it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, people could uh, maybe look on YouTube for Louis mm. Theroux and look at his documentaries. But uh, he is often a guest on Adam Buxton's podcast. Because mm. they went to school together and they know each other very well. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And uh, yeah. yeah, they complement each other very well. Yeah, they do. So I was saying that I listen to lots of podcasts, Mark mm-hmm. and Simon's podcast, mm. Adam Buxton's podcast, the word ramble. That's it. Remember, yeah. I, I said that... Yeah. I'd come back to that one. Uh, mm. On Adam's uh, podcast, he he talks about his conversations um, as uh, he describes them as as ramble chats. So uh, I think my listeners know what ramble means because I mean I've mm. done it enough. Well, they should do if they listen to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, that's why I don't end up reading so much. I just end mm. up. Uh, listening to all these interesting podcasts that people keep uploading. Um, well, what you should do in that case is read Andy Miller, who I was talking about before, who does the Backlisted podcast. Yeah. He's written a book called The Year of Reading Dangerously. Yeah. Because he found that he was in your situation, having even though he was working in the book trade and he had to read certain things as part of his job, but he was he lost the knack of being able to read for pleasure. So he he started a sort of regime, a program of getting himself back into reading. Mm. And it's, it's you know, the, that's what the book's all about, about the books that he reads and how he goes about it. And it's really brilliantly written and it's it's great. Okay. I've lent it to your father to read because he's also not very good at getting into reading, mm. um, which I think is a real shame. What? Why? What's his story then with reading? Oh, I don't know. I think he finds it hard to concentrate on reading. Um, he's very good at concentrating on work and that sort of thing. But I think he finds it hard to sort of lose himself in a book. Mm. Um, certain ones I've re- recommended to him, he's really enjoyed um, and has got into them. But um, I know he finds it difficult. But he's. Um, but you, you gave him... You lent him the year of reading dangerously, and, and yeah. has it worked? I don't know because he's. I only gave it to him recently. I took gave it to him to take. You know, he's been in Brussels, yeah, uh, for the last couple of days working, and uh, so I gave it to him to read on the plane and while waiting for things. So I don't know whether he's been reading it. I'll find out later this afternoon when I go and pick him up from the airport. Okay. All right. Well, yeah, I should get a copy of that. Maybe maybe that will sort of um, get me started on reading again. Mm. Um, I mean, I did read on holiday. Um, What was I reading? Oh, I can't remember. I was reading a book by Steve Earle. Mm. Do you know who he is? I know the name. I can't think who he is. Steve Earle's a country musician from the United States. Oh, right. Yeah. Who had a very interesting life and a and a real up and down musical career. Because mm. um, he, as well as being a, a fantastic musician and a really great mm. songwriter, he writes these sorts of story songs. Mm. You know those songs in the country tradition, yes, yeah, where it's a, it's a, you know, each verse of the song is a, is a, you know, a different part of the story, yes, and the chorus kind of wraps the whole thing up. I mean, the, uh-huh. it's really good stuff. Yeah. Um, and uh, he started writing as well, and uh, he kind of 
does the same thing in his stories as he does in his songs, like these stories about people on the on the wrong side of the tracks. Mm. You know, they're stories of people who are involved in lives of crime or people who are caught up in drug addiction. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yet there's a, a strong thread of sort of romance and tragedy and... Oh, it's hard to explain, really. Mm. Uh, and I read one of his his books, and I I did lose myself in that. That was interesting. Mm. It was all about a a doctor in the nineteen sixties who um, was a junkie mm. and who um, was kind of living in this one horse town um, on the run, you know, because of his lifestyle. Mm. And uh, every time he took uh, his heroin. Uh, he would be visited by the ghost of Hank Williams. <laughs> uh, Hank Williams, the, you know, the... the yes, the country con- singer. The country singer. Yeah. And it was, you know, it's an interesting device. Yes. Because it's sort of... It, uh, the, in the story, the, the main character was Hank Williams' doctor. Mm. And I don't know if you know about Hank Williams, but apparently he was, a, he was addicted to um, pain-killing medication. Mm. Um, and um, I, I think so there are some elements of truth in the story mm. and you know it's a, a sort of a <clears throat> redemptive tale you know a tale of, redemp- of redemption yeah. which is often yeah. what these these western stories are either about revenge or about redemption or both and yeah. this one is a, a tale of redemption about a guy who who uh, you know, you think that he's he's lost and that he he's going to die because he's at the end of the line, you know, in terms of his life, and he's really badly um, messed up on on heroin. But he manages to kind of get himself back on his feet in various ways, and you know, that sort of thing. Talking of which, yes, talking of films, which we haven't done, but you did mention films earlier on. Yeah, Marta asked for a movie recommendation. Oh, right, that's right. Mm -hmm. Well, I read, um, last night I watched um, Trainspotting 2. Ah. Which James lent me, and James said it was really good. Yes. And have you seen it? I have seen it. I thought it was amazing. Mm. I thought it was really good. Did you? Oh, yeah. I, I actually preferred it than to the original. It was incredible. I mean, I loved the um, structure of it, you know, that it turns out that Spud wrote the story of we, the train spotting one. We should watch out for spoilers here. Sorry. That's okay. That's not... But that's, I was, that's I okay. was just... I, I was completely wrapped up in it. I, I thought it was amazing. And I was you know, laughing and crying and I thought it was very emotional. Yeah. And I was just so glad that this probably is a spoiler, but I don't care. Yeah. But uh, I was really glad that Spud is okay because I was very worried about him. You were worried about him in the original film? Both. Well, and particularly in the second one. Right. I thought that he was the one that was going to be utterly doomed, but quite the reverse, really. Mm. So I don't know if my listeners all have seen the film. A lot of people will know Train Spotting and they'll know Train Spotting too. I know, for example, I think that Marta, the listener who who wrote that question, I mm. think she's seen it. I think right. someone asked me to to talk about it on the podcast, ah. um, and I suppose I'm doing that right now. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so, but anyway, for those people who aren't so familiar with it, what is Train Spotting and what is Train Spotting Two? Do you want to start with what is Train Spotting? Um, well, it's a while since I saw it, but um, it's the story of four 
Yeah. Um, young men from Edinburgh who five. are all Sorry. five. Yeah. Yes, because one of them dies. Y- yes. Yeah. But he's not such a big character, is he, in the it, whole this, thing? Well, not that I remember anyway. Well, he is in the first one. And I think yeah. his his passing is his death. Let's yeah. call it what it is. Yeah. Uh, his death is a sort of looming presence in the second film. Don't you think? Yes, it is. Absolutely. Um, anyway, they're all addicted to heroin, basically. And it's that's really grim. But it, the film was made by... Um, yeah. What's, what's his, his name? What's his name? You know, Hoojima Flip. <laughs> Hoojima Flip. What do you call him? Um, yeah, the guy who did the Olympics. Yes. The guy who did 127 hours. The guy who did... Yeah. Uh, um, uh, <laughs> the, <laughs> Isn't can it weird? Really, isn't it weird? Can you not remember? I, I, I can if I can if I, I keep thinking of Irvin Welsh, but he wrote the book. No, he wrote Danny, the book. Boyle, Danny Boyle. Danny Boyle. Oh, Danny it. Boyle. <laughs> anyway, it's done in his amazing style. Just very. I don't know how you describe it. Very in your face, isn't it? It's and, it's, it's um and intense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Visceral. Yeah, and colourful, and yeah, all those things. It's like a. It's it, it's it's. Uh, you really experience the film. I you mean, do. You, 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 it, it's a, a bit of a, a rush. It's a bit of an adrenaline rush. I say adrenaline. I mean, the story is about the certainly the first film was about heroin addicts. So there is something sort of chemical about the experience yeah. of watching yeah, his films. Yeah, the pictures kind of match the the subject matter somehow. Yeah, the, it's um, a, a bit. It, yeah, it's intense. Yeah, mm. his work is often intense. Like, Very intense. like the, the most intense one for me was 127 yes. Hours, yeah. which is the story of the guy who has to cut off his own arm in order to mm. survive a, a, a climbing accident. Oh, wow, that was really intense. Oh, it was, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, Train Spotting was, yeah, this intense. But I think story. I found this, this one, T- T2, I found it even more intense because I cared about the characters. I even cared about Begsby by the end. Begby. Begby by the end. Yeah. You almost felt sorry for him at the end. Yeah, that's right. It's really clever the way that they avoided just turning him into a monster. Yeah. They yeah, every character was given a certain amount of backstory. Yeah. Not, you know, some of them were good uh, some you know, they all had bits of uh, uh bad in them. You know, well, it was good I mean? because it showed how Nothing ever comes from nothing. You know, Begbie wasn't bad because he was bad. He was bad because of the way his father was and, you know, his upbringing and that sort of thing. Yeah. And There's also, no such thing as just a straightforward evil person. There's always a reason for it. The the, the film Train Spotting and, and the sequel, they both uh, star Ewan McGregor. Mm. Um, I, I don't know if... I, I'm still not sure if all my listeners know which film we're talking about, you see. Uh, mm. Ewan McGregor film. Um, and uh, his character... Um, uh, what's his name again? Renton. Mark, Mark Renton. Renton. Yeah, so the this first film ends with uh, him doing something questionable on a moral level. Like uh, <laughs> he does something which uh, the other characters... You know, it's a sort of an, a, a betrayal... 
mm. at the end of his friends. And then this film sees him come back to see his friends. And, um, he, you know, to an extent, Renton is, is sort of, uh, he, he's done some bad things. They've he all, has. they've all done really bad things. You they see. have, they've some, done some dreadful things. Yeah. And, and, and yet the film kind of, um, tries to explore the, the context in which they do those things. And, mm-hmm. and it treats people with a sort of level of human respect. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's got it. The, the ending is, um, I suppose, uh, quite positive. Yes, it is. But having said that, I was streaming with tears by the end of it. Were you really? Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I was, as you said, you know, you really live it. I mean, because it's so intense. Yeah. I thought it was amazing. Yeah. And, uh, and after I'd um, watched it, I tweeted James and told him I'd watched it. And so we then had this quite long conversation over, not tweet, um, text we had a long conversation over text about it yeah which was nice D- he liked he's it. Gr- yeah well he it was he, he who lent me the film the the dvd mm. um because so, i didn't yeah. see it at the cinema in fact i didn't think i could cope with seeing it at the cinema it would just be too much really mm. yeah very intense uh, experience Mm-mm. um if you care about the characters yeah one thing that my listeners might notice when they're watching that is that the the whole thing is set in edinburgh might be very difficult for them to understand because it was difficult for me to understand on occasions yeah yeah because they, they speak with very strong accents um certainly in the first film i mean that's one of the features of the the film uh, and the book uh, i don't mm-hmm. know if you've ever read the book no because i hate books that write speech in dialect i find it really irritating yeah well the 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 book train spotting by irvin welsh is written in the dialect i mean for example it's written phonetically so the way that uh, the local characters speak is actually spelled out um it's hard to explain that but the mm. spelling is different and the whole thing's written in this strong accent so it can it's it must be really really hard for learners of English to oh, yes. to understand that. In fact, that. it's it's not really the right sort of thing we should be discussing, is it? If you're talking to people who are learning English as a foreign language. Well, I don't know, Mum. I mean, you know, they should they should um, they should be aware of that kind of English too. Shouldn't yes, they? but having said that, you know that 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 Edinburgh accent is so strong. As I say. One of, I, in fact, at one point, I considered putting the uh, subtitles on because I couldn't uh, understand some of it. I think you I th- have to you get your you get your ear in. At the beginning, I found it difficult, but by the end, I was managing all right. Yeah, you get used to it. Um, <clears throat> but yeah. I certainly think for my listeners, if if they wanted to watch it in the original version, you know, in mm. English, um, then they would definitely need to put the subtitles on. I think so. Yeah. Um. um you know. I mean, like. I, as as we know, um, if you're using films to learn uh, English or learn any language, that there are various things you can do. You can watch it with the, you know, with the subtitles in your language, so that you make sure you you understand yeah. it properly. And then you watch it again with the subtitles in English, and then you watch it again with no <laughs> subtitles. You know, you know, there's various ways you can play around with the subtitles and stuff to help with the learning process. But just in terms of a recommending a really good film, then that would be, um, you know, a, yeah. a, a, your recommendation recommendation here uh, yeah i was very impressed with it yeah 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 mm. okay um mum i've got loads of other questions was, oh yeah and i'm saying that the time is getting on and i 
I think we really ought to draw it to a close. I agree. I was going to. Because gonna... I've got uh, various things I need to do now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And is it raining? Is it pissing down with rain yet? No, it's just very, very cloudy and looks as though it might, but it hasn't done. So that's good. Okay. Um, I was just going to say I've got loads of other questions, but yeah, we've run out of time. Yeah, I'm afraid we have. Um, so it's been nice to have a chat, though. It has been, hasn't it? Yeah. I mean, you know, I could talk to you uh, for for ages and ages. Um, and to an extent, the fact that I have this podcast kind of gives me an excuse to have these extended yes. conversations. Well, it's difficult some, sometimes to have long conversations, isn't it? Because when we get together, for example, there's always so much going on yeah, all the time. There's like other people around and yeah. lots of other things that need to be done. Yeah, yeah, it can be hard to find the time to have a long conversation with, with someone. Yeah. But that's kind of one of the advantages of doing this podcast. <laughs> yeah. That as well as creating some content which I can publish and help people to to learn English by listening to genuine conversations mm. and they can get little tips and recommendations about books and films and things. Also it gives me an opportunity to have an extended conversation with someone. Yes. <laughs> In this case you, which is very nice. Yeah. yeah. Lovely. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Well maybe we can do this again sometime. Yeah. Okay. That would be good. All right, then. And you're going to go and pick up Dad from the airport? I am, yeah. Okay, well, you can tell him from me that, um, you know, I haven't had him on the podcast talking about politics lately. Okay. I mean, but if he's, if he's still interested, uh, he could come back and we can catch up on, uh, on the whole Brexit situation. Oh, no. I know. It's just, it's a tragedy. The whole thing is just awful. Yeah, well, if he can, if he can stand talking about it, if it, it just the trouble is the more we talk about it, the more depressed we become. I know, I know, yeah, uh, I know. Well, you can just let him know that. Um, yeah, he's always. Well, I'm well, sure he'd be. I'm sure welcome. he'd be very happy to talk to you. He's always happy to talk to you. Yeah, so. well, he's always welcome, yeah. and uh, you know, yeah. I'm sure my listeners have been, you know, waiting to hear from him as well. Yeah. Um, but I will speak on behalf of everybody, everybody, and say thank you very much for coming on the podcast, Mum. And okay, for, thank and for, you for inviting. Yeah, me. thank you for talking so so generously to us. <laughs> yeah, it's been very nice. Good. Okay. All right. We'll take care. We'll do. And um, speak to you again soon. Speak to you again soon. Okay then. Yeah. Bye okay. for now. Bye. Bye bye. Right then, right then, right then. So I hope you enjoyed listening to that chat with my mum, who's lovely, isn't she? I'm very lucky to have a mum like my mum, because she's really nice. Um, Anyway, without going on about that too much, I hope you enjoyed listening to the second part of our rambling conversation. Now, how much vocabulary did you identify? How much did you notice? How much stuff did you understand? Now, I imagine, I think, I predict that you understood quite a lot of my conversation with mum. That's just my sort of professional opinion. That's a prediction. I think you probably did okay. You probably followed the conversation without too much difficulty, just because she speaks clearly, doesn't she? She's not too difficult to follow. And she was recorded quite well using the microphone that I uh, gave to my dad. So she was using my dad's microphone so it was well recorded and she speaks clearly. So I think you probably understood most of it. Uh, but I also think that there's probably quite a lot of vocabulary in there that you probably didn't know or that you don't even realise that you missed. 
There might be some words or phrases that you already know, but you're not completely sure about. Let me go through it now. This is where the, this is the learning opportunity here, okay? Because after all, Luke's English Podcast is a podcast for people who are learning English. And the idea is that, you know, by listening to authentic conversations, by getting exposure to natural English, that you can pick up the language like that, or you can at least kind of get used to listening to it. Uh, But I also think that giving you a bit of support is vital in the process. I think it can really help and really make a difference to your English. So not only do you listen to conversations and hopefully enjoy doing it, but also sometimes it's worth me just sort of giving you a bit of support and going through some of the language and sort of flagging a few things up, going, look, did you notice that? How about this? Did you see that? What about this phrase? Do you know this phrase? That's what it means. That's the difference between this and this. You know, that's my, it's my job, isn't it? It's my job as a teacher to do all that stuff. Okay, so let me go through some words and phrases from that conversation and let's see if you can add this language to your vocabulary too. Okay. All of this stuff, you can see all of this on the page for the episode on my website. I recommend that you check it out because it will help as well. Okay. Right. So um, I'm going to read out some phrases that um, were said in that conversation and then highlight some of the language. So the first thing I'm going to read out is this. Uh, My mum talking about the shop. She said, we're proud of our shop. We take a great pride in it. Um, So you know the expression to be proud of something. Also, we can say to take pride in something, to take pride in something. Actually, my mum said to take a pride. In fact, to take a great pride in something. Honestly, I think it's more common to say just to take pride in something or to take great pride in something rather than to take a great pride in something. Okay, so I think it would be, you know, we're really proud of our shop. We take great pride in it, even though my mum actually said we take a great pride in it. Okay, think about think about your uh, your situation. Whenever um, you come up, whenever you come across language that you want to add to your own uh, English, you need to try and uh, make a little sentence about yourself using the phrase. So, what do you take pride in? What are you proud of? What about in your town or city? Is there something you're particularly proud of? What do you take great pride in? Is there something you take great pride in doing in your life? Think about it and maybe come up with a sentence or two. Um, Let's see. So in the bookshop where my mum works, they don't sell new books. They sell old books, old books which which have been donated by, um, by people in the community. So these are second-hand books or used books, okay? So there you go, just two phrases for, um, you know, things that are not new. You can say second-hand or used, okay? Do you have any second-hand things in your home? Do you have any second-hand clothes? Do you have any second-hand books? Uh, do, you, do you have a second-hand bookshop in your town? Um, what do you think? Do you, do you prefer to, do you like to get secondhand books or do you prefer to get new books? I like to get secondhand books, I think, because usually secondhand books have got a they've got you feel like they've got a history. Sometimes in secondhand books you can see little notes that have been written. Maybe if they were offered as a gift and you kind of, you know, you read a little note like to to Arthur, you know, with lots of love from 
uh, Ethel. And you're like, oh, who were, who were Arthur and Ethel? Um, yeah, anyway, uh, secondhand. Okay. Um, another phrase was, we get a lot of cookbooks. So a cookbook, well, it's, it's pretty clear, isn't it? What a cookbook is. A cookbook is a book, uh, with lots of recipes in it. Okay. So if you want to learn how to cook some stuff, you need to get a cookbook or you could just look on the internet, but cookbooks are very popular. Okay. How do you have any cookbooks in your home? How many cookbooks do you have? Downstairs in our flat, we've got a little shelf in the kitchen with loads of cookbooks in it that we never use. I don't know why we never use them. There are some really good cookbooks in there with some great recipes in them, but I never. the only one I use is the one that my mum gave to me at Christmas a couple of years ago, and it's got her recipes in it. So it's a homemade cookbook with some of my mum's recipes. Uh, some of you will have heard an episode of this podcast when I actually cooked one of my mum's recipes on the podcast and I talked about uh, the recipe and I talked about the way I was preparing the food while I was preparing it in the kitchen. I think that one is called Cooking with Luke, uh, Verbs and Phrases for the Kitchen. I think that's what it was called. You can see, You can find it in the episode archive. So that's cookbooks. Then again, other types of books. We have biographies and autobiographies. So in the secondhand bookshop where my mum works, they get lots of celebrity celebrity biographies and autobiographies. What's the difference between a biography and an autobiography? Okay, well, a biography is the story of someone's life but it's written by someone else, okay? The story of someone's life written by someone else. I'm just looking around the room here to see if I've got any. I don't. <laughs> I don't have any to use as an example. Do I? No, no, nothing around here. Oh, I've got one here. Okay, here's an example. This book in my hand is called Fab, An Intimate Life of Paul McCartney by Howard Souness. So this is a biography of Paul McCartney, not written by Paul but written by someone else, Howard Souness. So that's a biography, okay? And then an autobiography means it's written uh, by the person, okay? So I've got an autobiography up there on the shelf. I've got a book by Richard Pryor about his own life, and it was written by Richard Pryor. So that's an autobiography, okay? Okay, then biography written by someone else, autobiography written by the person him or herself. Okay. Um, Another phrase from the episode was, a lot of books I've been reading are quite obscure. That's what my mum said. She said, a lot of the books I've been reading are quite obscure. So if something is obscure, that's O-B-S-C-U-R-E, it means it's only known by a few people. So not widely known, just known by a few people. So some of the books that my mum has been reading um, are quite obscure because they come from that their recommendations from this podcast that she likes the the uh, the backlisted podcast uh, and the backlisted podcast as you'll know if you listen to part one of this uh, features books that have have gone out of print so that's why a lot of the books she's reading are quite obscure so not known by that many people um, for example the book the Citadel by A J Cronin which is the book she was talking about about this doctor um, who, I can't remember when the book was set, but it was a a book about a doctor. One of the phrases she used to describe the story of it was this. She said, "Um, 
a lot of the problems were caused by infrastructure, like the sewers. So the problems that they experienced uh, at the time that the book is set, uh, a lot of the medical problems were caused by infrastructure, like the sewers. So let's start with the word infrastructure. So it's infra, fra, there's a r sound in there. It's not infa, not like, yeah, it's not infrastructure, but infrastructure. Infrastructure is really the basic facilities in a town or city or in a country, such as the transport, the communications, the power supplies, the buildings, the roads, and the sanitation systems, which enable that place to function. So this is infrastructure, okay? And that includes the sewers. And the sewers are the underground tunnels that carry all the toilet waste. And by toilet waste, I mean all the piss and shit, (laughs) So sewers are disgusting places, usually underground, under the city, uh, under the town, and they carry away all of the poo and all the pee from people's toilets. So when you flush the toilet, all that waste goes down into the sewers and then is sort of uh, carried away somewhere else. So those are the sewers, okay? Uh, so in the in back in the olden days, a lot of um, health problems were caused by bad sewer systems that wouldn't remove the waste properly and the water supply would end up getting contaminated, which would lead to lots of enteric diseases. So here's the next phrase. Enteric diseases. Well, we know what diseases are, but what does enteric mean? Well, an enteric disease is one which has been caused by unclean water. Okay? Uh, Enteric diseases. For example... Typhoid, cholera, uh, and diarrhea as well. Lovely. <laughs> Lovely stuff. All right, let's move on away from enteric diseases and sewers and things, because that's just disgusting, isn't it? Um, so next we have uh, the phrase entirely preventable diseases, but not easily treated. So these enteric diseases, oh, we're still on enteric diseases. Okay. They're entirely preventable, but not easily treated. So I wanted to look at the expressions to prevent a disease, to treat something and to cure something or someone. Okay. So to prevent a disease means to make sure that that disease never infects people in the first place, that to make sure that the disease never really happens, that's to prevent it. To treat someone or to treat a disease would mean to give treatment to people who are suffering from a disease. So you can treat a person, for example, you know, treat a person suffering from typhoid, or you can treat the disease as well. Like, you know, we need to look into ways of treating uh, typhoid, let's say. And also to cure as well. So to cure means to make a disease disappear completely, okay? To make a disease disappear completely through treatment, okay? Now they say that prevention is better than cure because it's better to make sure that the disease never even happens than it is to, like... treat it and then make it go away, like treat it and then cure it completely, okay? Prevention is better than cure, okay? So let's say even if you can't prevent a disease, you can treat the person who's got it and then hopefully cure that person of that disease, okay? Um, And also the noun, we have the noun cure as well, okay? The cure for something, like for example, scientists are still looking for the cure for cancer. Um, Another phrase from the episode, they find the sewer and they blow it up 
so that the authorities have to replace it. Talking about the plot of that book still in the story, they find the sewer and they blow it up. So to blow something up means to make something explode. Uh, How did they blow it up? With a bomb? No, with some sticks of dynamite. So obviously you know what a bomb is. Let me just remind you that you don't pronounce the B. So it's bomb, not bomb. Uh, and that's an explosive device. Sticks of dynamite are also types of explosive device. These are things that look a bit like candles. In a weird way, they look a bit like candles, but they explode. So they're like bad candles, if you like. Uh, they're like they're kind of like candles, but they explode because they're made of nitroglycerine, not wax. And they have a fuse at the top, not a wick. On a candle, it's a wick. But on a on sticks of dynamite, they have a fuse, and you light the fuse, and tss, and there's nothing you can do. There's no way you can stop the fuse. Like, as you know from films and cartoons, you light the fuse, and, tss, and eventually, when the fuse uh, reaches the stick of dynamite, then bang, you know, it explodes. Okay, so that's stick, a stick of dynamite. Um, here's a long sentence uh, from the conversation like this. It starts out with this man who who starts out being incredibly idealistic and wanting to improve things and he gradually gets worn down by the system and ends up becoming one of these quacks who gets himself popular with people who have lots of money and treats them for things that they haven't really got before he's finally brought up short. So not lots of nice language in there. Uh, to start out is basically to start, but to start from the very beginning. So to start from the very beginning of a process would be to start out. In this case, we're talking about the man's career. He starts out uh, being incredibly idealistic. If you are idealistic, it means that you base your behaviour on certain high ideals or principles, even if it's impractical or unrealistic. It's a bit similar to being naive, I guess. Like people say that if if you're idealistic, it means you're a bit naive because you're not really realistic. You're just basing everything on these high principles to be idealistic. Um, To get worn down by something means to become weaker because of difficult experiences over time. Now, there's there's the literal meaning of to get worn down. Like, for example, uh, let's say the tyres on your car, eventually, because of all of the... Um, uh, what's the word for it? Because they get uh, worn, because of the, the wear, um, the way that the tyres the have contact with the road, and eventually the, the road, like... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh erode that's it the the uh, friction of the tire on the road will er- will erode the tires and wear them away so that eventually you end up with bald tires you know the rubber is just worn down so that's l- the literal meaning of to wear to get worn down by something um but the we also use it in a more um idiomatic sense meaning to become weaker because of difficult experiences. So if you start out as a, as a very idealistic doctor going, yeah, I'm going to cure everyone and I'm going to, you know, uh, make this town really healthy. But over time, you come up against difficulties like maybe political situations in the town or the lack of education. And, you know, time and time again, more and more difficulties. Eventually, you will, your strength, and your motivation could be worn down 
by the kind of difficulties that you come up against. Okay. Um, and in the story, the guy becomes a quack. So a quack is basically a fake doctor, a fraudulent doctor, you know, the sort of doctor who would probably just do things for money rather than genuinely trying to help people. So he becomes a bit more um, cynical and he becomes a quack. Okay, Q-U-A-C-K, exactly the same word as the noise that a duck makes. Quack, 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 quack. Ducks also go quack, but a quack in terms of doctors, that's like a fake doctor. Okay, Um, the next phrase from that paragraph is to bring someone up short. So he, um, he becomes a quack who gets himself popular with people who have lots of money and he treats them for things that they haven't really got before he's finally brought up short. To be brought up short means to suddenly stop doing something um, or to be stopped by something, often with a surprise. So some sort of surprising experience stops you. It brings you up short and it can be passive or active. Um, So this event brought him up short, or he was brought up short. I think this means that he had some sort of experience which changed him. It stopped him in his cynical ways and um, meant that he kind of, um, he, he became an honest doctor again because something brought him up short. Something interrupted him and stopped him. Okay, Uh, she said, it's quite moving. She said the, my mum said the book is quite moving. So if something's moving, it means it makes you feel a strong emotion. So, you know, what about you? When was the last time you read a moving book or a moving story? When was the last time you saw a moving film? When was the last time you were moved by something like a book or a film? I wonder which book or film it was. Um, then uh, the next thing is there is this character arc of this guy who starts out innocent and gets seduced by the money. So a character arc, arc spelt A-R-C, and an arc in this case means a narrative or storyline for a particular character which changes from the start to the finish. So when we're talking about films or books, we talk about character arcs, meaning the the storyline for that particular character, how they go through various changes from the beginning to the end of the book. Okay, most movies, the in most movies, the principal character goes through some sort of character arc where they, you know, change in some way throughout the story. Okay, like for example, in Star Wars, Luke Skywalker starts out as this young farm boy, just a, a kid who works on a farm, and th- and then he goes through all these changes, and by the end, he becomes like this powerful Jedi Knight. I'm quite curious to see the development of Luke Skywalker's character arc in the new Star Wars film, which is coming out in a couple of months. I can't wait because I'm a Star Wars geek. I don't know about you. Um, Next phrase is, there's lots of parallels with today. So we'll start with the vocabulary in that sentence. There's, There's lots of parallels with today. Parallels just means similarities, okay? Now we have parallel lines. Parallel lines are lines that um, never cross or never deviate from each other. Like, for example, tra- uh, train tracks. The the two tracks on, um, you know, for, for a train, they're parallel. They never deviate, they never go away from each other, and they never cross each other. They're parallel. So that's parallel lines, but we also talk about parallels with something. So in the book, there are parallels with today, meaning similarities. 
Now, the grammar there, my mum actually said, there's lots of parallels with today. Now, the uh, observant kind of grammar people out there might have noticed that technically that is grammatically wrong. So it should be, there are lots of parallels. Now, my mum, if she's listening to this, she will be kicking herself because she, I guess, she values correct grammar. And I think she would like to be someone who always uses quote-unquote correct grammar. Uh, But this is the sort of thing that many, many native speakers do every day. There, there's, meaning there is, when in fact it should be, there are. For example, there's lots of parallels. There's lots of people in the room. There's lots of cars in the street, for example. So there is lots of, plus a plural, technically that should be, there are lots of people. There are lots of cars. But when you contract the there with a with a verb be, when you contract it, it's so much easier to say there's than it is to say there are, there are, there are lots of parallels. It's a little harder to say that than there's a lot of parallels. That's probably the reason. But anyway, regardless of that, it is technically incorrect, but everyone does it without even realising they're doing it. Uh, so I think it's sort of an exception that's generally considered to be okay, even though most people don't even realise they're doing it. And if they did realise they were doing that, they would probably kick themselves. Uh, So I guess that's a a good mistake, if you know what I mean. There are good mistakes and bad mistakes. Bad mistakes would be ones that nobody does, ones that are obviously wrong. And then good mistakes are the sorts of things that native speakers make. I know that sounds unfair, but there it is. What are you going to do? You could continue saying there are lots of people in the street. There are lots or there are a lot of people in the street. You can continue doing that. Great. But it's interesting, isn't it, that uh, so many native speakers these days say there's lots of people in the street and not many people notice. Um, What else? Uh, My mum said about the book, she said it espouses socialist ideas. So to espouse something means to support it. Okay. Um, usually when we're talking about a way of life to espouse socialist ideas in this case. Okay. Espouse. E-S-P-O-U-S-E. Uh, E-S-P-O-U-S-E. Or E-S-P-O-U-S-E-S. <sighs> Spelling. Espouse or espouses. Then we went on to talk about the book Mothering Sunday by Graham Swift. My mum said that it's very short. It's a novella. So a novella is a short novel. Uh, She said it's a tiny book, but it contains a heck of a lot. A heck of a lot is quite a nice expression. It just means a lot. But it's emphasised with a heck of at the beginning. So you end up with a heck of a lot. Also, we have a hell of a lot as well. So you can say... There are, there are, you see, it's difficult to say there are a lot. That's why people say there's a lot. There's a lot of people in the street. There's a heck of a lot of people in the street. There's a hell of a lot of people in the street. Um, my mum said it's about class. It's about post-traumatic stress after the First World War. It's about families losing sons. Post-traumatic stress or PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. This is, an em- this is emotional distress or shock which continues in someone's life after experiencing extreme danger or stress. 
It's common in soldiers who've experienced the shock of combat in war. So you can imagine a soldier who's come back from the war um, and they may have been exposed to uh, situations of extreme danger, maybe explosions, you know, gunfire. They may have seen people getting killed. They may have killed people themselves. They may have been wounded in combat. Uh, People in those situations often come back uh, and come out of danger and yet they're still um, distressed they're still experiencing shock. They're still experiencing the, the sort of after effects of uh, moments of extreme stress. And uh, that condition is called uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, next phrase uh, is this one. Um, my, I think I said, or my mum said, if English is your second language, it can be a bit of a slog sometimes to keep going. Uh, it can be a bit of a slog to keep reading. So a slog is the word, S-L-O-G. A slog means a long, difficult and tiring experience. A slog, you know. So, for example, you know, you can say, oh, we, you know, we, there is no, there's no subway station near our house because we live at the top of the hill. So we have to walk up the hill every day. And it's a bit of a slog, to be honest, especially when you're carrying heavy shopping bags. Or reading a long book in another language can be a bit of a slog because, you know, it's difficult to keep going because it's hard work. You have to, you know, you have to uh, keep your motivation up. It's a bit of a slog sometimes. So reading can be a bit of a slog. It can be a long, difficult and tiring experience, which is why it's worth reading shorter books sometimes. Like, for example, The Old Man and the Sea by Ernest Hemingway. Um let's see what else we moved on to talk about uh the adam buxton podcast especially episodes with louis theroux who is one of our favorite people um louis theroux is that documentary filmmaker from the uk and i always recommend that you watch his documentaries if you can find them because they're very interesting louis theroux so uh, my mum said uh that people say that he is faux naive he comes across as innocent, so he has to ask questions to find out what's going on. So to be faux naive, faux is a French word that we use in English, F-A-U-X. Faux basically means fake or false. So he's not really naive, uh, he's just sort of putting it on. He's pretending to be naive. Naive means innocent, you know, basically. Innocent meaning when you don't when you are not cynical, um, probably because you are not very experienced. You know, you haven't had many bad experiences if you're naive. And so you expect things to be easy or you expect everyone to be honest or kind. You have a kind of nice view of the world. Everything's fine. Everything's nice. Everything works out in the end. Happy, happy, happy. No, that's a bit naive. It's not very sort of tough or realistic uh, viewpoint on the world. So that's naive. So people uh, seem to think that Louis Theroux is a bit naive, like he seems nice. He seems to just assume that everything's nice. Uh, He doesn't really realise how dark things are. Uh, He comes across as innocent, meaning he gives the impression of being sort of innocent. But in fact, it's it's kind of an act. He's not that naive. He's putting it on in order to 
sort of get a certain reaction from people to to get people to explain things. It's just his his sort of technique for uh, getting information out of people. He just sort of pretends to not really know what's going on and to be innocent. Um, he comes across as being a bit innocent, and as a result, people then. They, they they kind of don't feel defensive around him. They don't feel threatened by him. And they open up and they kind of uh, show him things and reveal certain things about themselves because they don't feel threatened by him. And it's all his method of kind of getting uh, getting to the heart of a story. You have to see that his documentaries to understand what I'm talking about, really. If you can imagine someone walking into a situation like, for example, I don't know, like... Um, a bunch of neo-Nazis, like he might go and spend time with a bunch of uh, right-wing neo-Nazis and he's kind of all innocent and just sort of, you know, oh, so what do you believe in? Why why do you believe in that then? And then they end up kind of telling him lots of things and it's quite revealing in that sense. They don't feel like they're being attacked by him. Instead, he just goes in all open-minded and they reveal sort of what they really believe in which is quite interesting to to watch uh, in the form of a documentary. Um, Words about his appearance. So here are some nice phrases about appearance. So Louis Theroux looks a bit dorky, goofy or geeky. We also have the word gangly as well. All right then, so dorky, goofy and geeky. All of these words are used to describe someone who is not cool. They're very similar words, but they're slightly different in meaning. So dorky... Uh, means unfashionable, awkward, not socially relaxed or laid back, a bit uptight and basically uncool. Okay, so imagine someone who's, who doesn't wear the coolest clothes. Uh, Louis Theroux is an example. He, his haircut is, you know, he's not got the most fashionable haircut in the world. He l- looks a bit uncool, like he's got big glasses and he's got quite a big nose and a big chin and He's just not the most cool, fashionable guy. He's a bit dorky. Okay. Another word is goofy. And goofy just means, a, if you would say someone is goofy if you thought they looked a bit ridiculous, mainly in appearance. You know, someone who's goofy might have teeth that are sticking out or big glasses or a big nose or big ears, just kind of ridiculous looking features. You'd say that uh, someone like that is Goofy. You can think of the character Goofy from the Disney animations. You know, you've got Mickey Mouse and Minnie Mouse, his wife, and then his friend Goofy, who is like this sort of this dog with big teeth. And, um, you know, he's not as cool as Mickey Mouse. Because, yeah, Mickey Mouse is the like, the coolest character in in the world of Disney. Anyway, Goofy's kind of like a bit too tall and he's got like these big teeth that stick out and he's a bit awkward. He's goofy, okay? And then the word geeky as well. And if someone is geeky, you really mean that they're interested or obsessed by things like computers and comics and science fiction, that they're more interested in those things than they are in people. You know, a, a geek, the sort of person who would spend all their time in front of a computer in like a forum about Star Wars, discussing the finer details of, you know, Darth Vader's suit or something like that. That would be a geeky person. Now, actually, Louis Theroux isn't really a geek uh, because he's very interested in people. He's actually very sociable. 
but he comes across as a bit geeky, probably just because of the way he looks and maybe the maybe his sort of uh, his English accent some, has something to do with it. I'm, I'm not sure, but anyway, he comes across as a bit of a geek. Um, my mum said he's quite tall. He's a bit gangly. His arms and legs are very long. So gangly is a description of physical appearance, and it means someone who's tall and thin with an awkward appearance and a clumsy manner. Someone who's kind of very tall, they've got very long arms and legs, and they seem a bit clumsy. You could say someone like that is gangly. Okay. Um, He's got this awkward Britishness. Now, awkward, this is a word that comes up a lot in my conversations, it seems. I often say that British people seem awkward. A-W-K-W-A-R-D. I often say that British people seem awkward or that I felt awkward in a particular situation or that a particular situation was awkward. Well, Louis Theroux can be described as having awkward Britishness, but what does awkward really mean? Well, it means kind of uncomfortable, not completely relaxed or loose, a bit embarrassing, a bit shy. So a situation can be awkward and a person can be awkward as well. Okay, um... So what situation would be awkward? Well, let's say if you if you go to a nightclub, you're dancing in a nightclub, and then you notice that your boss is at the nightclub as well. You're like, oh God, what's my boss doing here? And you, you don't want your boss to see you sort of dancing in the nightclub, because it would be a bit embarrassing. So you kind of, oh God, this is awkward. And you have to sort of hide in the corner of the room so that your boss doesn't see you. Is that a good example? Or let's say you go to a party and you don't realise it, but your ex-girlfriend is at the party as well. Uh, She's in the kitchen and you want to get a drink from the fridge in the kitchen. But if you go in there, you're going to end up seeing her. You'll have to talk to her. This is awkward. And especially since you're with another girl. Yeah, that's going to be awkward. Um, All right. So I said my my mum likes Louis Theroux and she thinks he's handsome or attractive. And I said, what do you fancy him? So to fancy someone, this means to find someone physically attractive, probably in a sexual way. Uh, but this is the sort of word that teenagers use, you know, like to fancy. So oh, do you fancy him? You know, like, oh yeah, apparently he fancies your sister, you know, to fancy someone, to be attracted to someone. Um, um, my mum or I said that Louis Theroux would spend time with all sorts of weird fringe groups. So fringe means the edge of something. And fringe groups are groups that exist on the edge of society. For example, cults, religious sects, uh, conspiracy theorists, extremists, and stuff like that. So the sorts of people that Louis Theroux makes documentaries about are typically fringe groups like, you know, neo-Nazis or people who believe in in the existence of aliens um, or religious sects and, and things like that. Fringe groups. Um, so still talking about Louis Theroux, um, I think my mum said his naive, awkward English friendliness is very disarming. And as a result, people open up to him. So to be disarming means to make people less hostile or aggressive, perhaps by being charming. Okay, so to disarm someone. So if someone is armed, it means that they've got weapons. Literally, it means they have weapons. Let's say they've got a gun. 
So if someone is armed, it means they're carrying a gun or a weapon. And if you disarm that person, it means you manage to take that weapon away from them. So that's what it literally means. But it also can mean, um, in a in a more figurative in a more figurative sense, it can mean that um, you 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 approach that person in a certain way so that they are not aggressive against you, or that they become they let their defenses down and they become more open with you. Okay, for example, if you're very charming with people, that can disarm them. It means that they lower their defenses. They're not defensive with you and therefore they're a bit more open with you. So that's to be disarming. So uh, Louis Theroux's sort of awkwardness and his friendliness is quite disarming. And as a result, people open up to him. So to open up to someone means to become more open and revealing with people. For example, to start talking about personal things. So then we moved on to talk about another book, which was called The Year of Reading Dangerously by Andrew Miller, which is a book about, uh, you know, a book about the joy of reading. And we talked about my dad and whether my dad reads a lot. And my mum said that uh, she gave him a copy of that book to try and um, get him back into the habit of reading because he'd lost the knack of being able to read for pleasure. So the expression here is the knack of of doing something. Knack is spelt K-N-A-C-K. It's a silent K. So the knack of doing something. If you have the knack of doing something, it means you have a particular uh, and skillful way of doing something. For example, here's an example of, of this phrase. There is a certain knack to opening... Sorry, there's a certain knack to closing the bedroom door silently in my flat. Okay, there's a knack to it. Um, it's a little tricky to close the bedroom door in my flat quietly. What you have to do is you pull the handle down and then you pull the door in, close the door slowly. And then once it's in, you let the handle go back. Okay. And then you pull the end of the handle until you hear a little click. Okay. So there's a knack to doing it. There's a knack to closing the door silently. In this case, my dad has lost the knack of being able to read for pleasure. So to lose the knack of doing something is a common way to say that you've lost the specific ability to do a certain thing. In this case, he's kind of forgotten how to just read for pleasure because my dad's a bit of a workaholic. So when he reads, he's normally working, he's normally reading about the news and it's related to his work in some way. He's lost the knack of just enjoying a good book just for pleasure. That's why my mum gave him that book as a gift. Um, I talked about a book that I read this summer, which was called I'll Never Get Out of This World Alive by Steve Earle. And I said it's about a doctor in the 60s who was a junkie. So a junkie is a drug addict, especially heroin. Heroin is often referred to as junk, uh, just uh, meaning this this drug, heroin. It's, it's, uh, it's called junk. And if you're a junkie, it means you're addicted to heroin. It's a drug addict. Um, and I said it was a redemptive tale, a story of redemption. So redemption is the process of being redeemed. Well, what does that mean? To, to redeem yourself means to change your, change your ways, to change from a life of sin or a life of evil or immor- Im- immorality. To change from a life of sin or evil or immorality to a life of good. Okay, so basically to change from being a bad guy to becoming a good guy. 
that's to redeem yourself or to get redemption uh and the adjective is redemptive so a redemptive story or a redemptive tale is a tale of redemption a tale of someone who changes their ways from doing sinful things to doing good things okay so this book by steve earl is a kind of tale of redemption just like a lot of um a lot of western um movies or western stories are often redemptive tales in fact there's that computer game that really cool computer game uh, which is set in the in the west and you play the part of like this gunslinger uh, it's a playstation game and it's also on xbox called red dead redemption it's a kind of cowboy computer game and it's also a tale of redemption of a guy who starts out as a a kind of a criminal and he gets his revenge and then he is able to live a peaceful life after that so that's a that's red dead redemption the computer game which is also a tale of redemption um we're nearly finished here i've uh, got a, just a few more phrases to get through we talked about train spotting 2 which is actually called t2 train spotting the sequel to the 1996 film train spotting i think it's 96 and um in that in that story they're all addicted to heroin so here we are again with heroin Uh, And it's really grim. So grim, this adjective means unpleasant and depressing. So as you can imagine, a story of of heroin addicts is quite grim, uh, unpleasant and depressing. And we were trying to remember the name of the director. Of course, the director's name is Danny Boyle, but we couldn't remember it at that moment. It's weird that, isn't it? Sometimes when you can't remember... When you're talking to someone and one of you can't remember something, like a word, and when one of you can't remember that word, suddenly neither of you can. Like the the, the memory lapse um, infects the other person too. That happens all the time where one of you can't remember something and then neither of you can remember it. That's what happened for uh, to us there. So anyway, when you can't remember someone's name, in English we have certain words that we use. So we have words like, uh, what's his name? which is obviously a question, what is his name? But it turns into one word. Um, I, you know who I saw the other day? Yeah, you know, I saw, um, what's his name? So what's his name is actually a word, a, a replacement for the name of the person who you, who, who you can't remember. Also, we have, what do you call him? What do you call him? You know, what's his name? Uh, what do you call him? Um, Hoojima Flip. Hoojima Flip is a good one, isn't it? Uh, I understand what's his name. It's a question. What do you call him is a question. What do you call him? Hoojima Flip, no idea what that one is. Uh, it's a bit ridiculous and quite funny. So, yeah, you know, who I saw the other day, uh, what's his name? You know, um, what do you call him? Um, Hoojima Flip. You know, oh, Danny Boyle, that's it. Okay, um, so all words for when you can't remember someone's name. And we were talking about the directing style of Danny Boyle, the the, the film director, and um, I said it, it's very in your face, it's intense, it's visceral. So if something is in your face, so for example, a film, if it's in your face, it means it's bold and direct, it's kind of aggressive, assertive, intense. You can imagine something being right up in your face, like a film. Whoa, intense. A person can be in your face as well. If someone is like really aggressive and assertive, like, oh, he's a bit in your face, isn't he, that guy? And also visceral. 
So to describe um, Danny Boyle's films, they're quite visceral. If something is visceral, that's V-I-S-C-E-R-A-L. It means relating to strong feelings or with strong emotions. So it it really um, creates a powerful feeling, you know, a powerful emotive feeling. Okay. And my mum said uh, that she was streaming with tears by the end of the film. So if you're streaming with tears, it means that, that tears um, are running down your face. So streaming, you know, like a stream of, of water or tears in this case. I was streaming with tears means I was crying, like the tears were running down my face. Okay. And then um, just at the end of the conversation, when we were running out of time, we had a, a a few expressions that we use when there uh, when there's no more time. Okay, so we'd. Uh, my mum said, "Well, the time is getting on." Okay, time is getting on, meaning that uh, it's late. Okay, time is getting on means it's late, and we really ought to draw it to a close. To draw something to a close, we ought to draw it to a close. To draw something to a close means to finish something draw it to a close, D-R-A-W. And ought to is just like should. So we really should finish this or we really ought to draw it to a close. And then the classic phrase, we've run out of time. To run out of time, that's when you've got no time left. We've run out of time, uh, which is appropriate because I think I've run out of time here as well. Uh, this episode is, oh, it's got to be at least an hour and a half long now. Okay, so that's all that there is time for. Uh, time is getting on. I really ought to draw this to a close because I've run out of time. Don't forget to visit the page on the website to see all of that language again um, so that you can really kind of learn it properly. Okay, don't forget also to join the mailing list on the website so that you can get a link uh, in your inbox Whenever I upload a new episode, it's just a good way of getting straight to the the relevant page so you can see vocab and notes and other things that I post. Okay, all right. Thank you so much for listening. Um, I look forward to reading your comments in the comments section if you have any. Uh, What did you think of some of the things that we said in this episode? And what do you think of my mum's voice? Do you you think she's easy to understand or difficult to understand? I look forward to reading your thoughts. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening to Luke's English Podcast. Goodbye. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com If you enjoyed this episode of Luke's English Podcast, consider signing up for Luke's English Podcast Premium. You'll get regular premium episodes with stories, vocabulary, grammar and pronunciation teaching from me and the usual moments of humour and fun. Plus, with your subscription, you will be directly supporting my work and making this whole podcast project possible. For more information about Luke's English Podcast Premium, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info.